0: And my next reading is John 12:12 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming, sitting on a colt, donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify it was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him the pharisees said then said to one another you see you can do nothing look the world has gone after him the word of the lord brothers and sisters grace to you
1: and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ amen and let us pray Jesus Christ, our true King, reign in our hearts this morning and give us the joy of serving you. Amen. Well, for the next eight days, including today, we will be moving more or less with Jesus in real time from his welcome by the crowds in Jerusalem to his resurrection on Easter. This week, which we call Holy Week, it is the week in which we celebrate the events which form the very center of our faith. Now, to be clear, Holy Week isn't just a reenactment, something meant to uh, educate or entertain us, uh, nor is it simply a way of reminding ourselves of past historical events. I mean, if that were all we were after, we would be better off with a history book or a documentary or a movie. Certainly, there are plenty available with far more resources than we could muster. No, what we are doing in this week is much more than telling old stories, although the stories are important. We're coming together to live these stories as our stories today. What sets the stories of Scripture apart from all of the other many stories uh, of history is that these stories are a part of God's story and that the very same person who is at work in these stories is present here and is at work today in us. So while these stories are indeed history in the sense that they took place around 2,000 years ago, they are also our present stories because God is still applying them to us today, confronting us, comforting us, and shaping us, remaking us into the image of Jesus Christ. So, for Monday, Thursday, rather than pretending to be present at the Last Supper, imagining the emotions of the disciples at their last Passover with Jesus, we instead hear his command to love as he has loved, and we receive a symbol of service in the washing of our hands so that we might go and serve others. And for Good Friday, we gather around a cross not to get worked up about Jesus' suffering— but to hear the still relevant judgment of our faithlessness and to receive the always new forgiveness of our sin as we enter into prayer on behalf of the whole world. And for Holy Saturday at our Easter vigil, we watch not as those first disciples watched, having little or no hope, but instead we gather on the eve of Jesus' Passover from death into life, telling the ancient stories of God's salvation and rejoicing in Jesus's victory over death and hell, even as we await his coming again in glory. And then when the morning comes on Easter Sunday, we gather once more in the light to proclaim anew the resurrection of Jesus and to rejoice in the salvation that he brings. Well, that same pattern of not just telling old stories but having them applied to us here and now, that's true for us today, this morning as well. When we gathered earlier out in the fellowship hall and in the alley and walked outside and we sang and we waved those palm branches, it wasn't because we were pretending to be those same crowds who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, but because Jesus is indeed our triumphant King even today. Though what a strange sort of King He is. Well, before I get into Jesus's kingship, let me take a moment to reorient us to where we are in John's gospel. So for the last three weeks, we've been hearing selections from Jesus's great Last Supper sermon, which took place the evening of his arrest on uh, what we will celebrate as Monday Thursday this week. But if you can remember back four weeks, you may recall that we heard about Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointing Jesus with costly perfume. And if your memory's really good, and we'll see, you can let me know after if your memory's really good, Uh, you may also recall that Jesus' trip to Bethany, that village near Jerusalem where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, it was particularly risky since great crowds of people had become interested in Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And their interest would lead the Jewish leaders to decide that Jesus and Lazarus, had to die. Well, our reading today takes place the day after that supper with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And those crowds who are welcoming Jesus in are made up of many of the same people who flocked to see him on account of his raising of Lazarus. And indeed, I imagine that the fragrance of that perfume that Mary anointed uh, Jesus' feet with. I imagine it still clung to his feet, that perfume uh, which Jesus said was kept for the day of his burial. You may have noticed this already just in the reading of the story or if you looked at it in your bulletin, but John's telling of this story is a little different than how we usually imagine it or how we usually hear it. He tells this differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they all start with this preparation of Jesus. Jesus sends his disciples ahead into a village to find a donkey for him, uh, to go and find it and untie it. And he says, if anybody asks you, just say, the Lord needs it or the teacher needs it. But here in John, the donkey seems almost to be an afterthought. There's no mention of preparation at all. And in fact, John reverses the order of how he tells this story. And in doing so, he makes a sort of conversation between Jesus and the crowds. First, the crowds hear that Jesus is coming, and so they set up a royal welcome for him. They take palm branches, a sign of victory, and they wave them around while they shout their welcome, Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then in reply, Jesus sits on a donkey. And though he doesn't actually say anything, we're told by John that his action is in a a quote of sorts of scripture. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right, so what's going on here? I mean, this will be a bit of a repeat. If you were here Wednesday night, you'll have heard this, but maybe there's uh, value in hearing it a second time. But there's a pretty deep conversation happening here, hidden under these two quotations from the Old Testament. So the crowd's acclamation of Jesus is from Psalm 118, which we read together before starting our, proclam- or our procession this morning. And while we today hear many of the references in that psalm, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, for example, while we hear those today in light of what we already know about Jesus going to the cross, being raised on Easter, for the crowds, they knew this psalm, Psalm 118, to be about the return of Israel's king, after a God-given victory in battle over enemy nations. So earlier in Psalm 118, in a few verses that we didn't read this morning, the victorious king recounts his victory. He says this, All nations surrounded me, in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, they blazed like a fire of thorns, and in the name of the Lord I cut them off. So when the crowds welcome Jesus by quoting this psalm, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they are welcoming him as a victorious king, one who will cut off all those nations who have oppressed Israel and restore Israel to its rightful place as God's chosen nation exalted and victorious over its enemies. In short, they're stating their hope that Jesus will save them by mustering an army and driving out the Roman occupation, restoring Israel to its former glory in the time of King David. And can you blame them? I mean, the Roman Empire by this point had been occupying Jerusalem for nearly a century and their occupation had not been a kind one. In addition to putting down several rebellions during that time, the current governor, Pontius Pilate, we've heard of him, had a reputation for cruelty in dealing with local disturbances. And while Israel had long known that Yahweh, God of Israel, was indeed the God over all the earth, it was also quite clear that they were God's chosen nation above all other nations, and that when their exaltation did come, it would involve the humbling of the gentile nations and so you can imagine their hope at the prospect of no longer being subject to rome of being their own sovereign nation able to defend themselves to live according to their own laws and customs without interference from their gentile neighbors i mean we can understand that i mean after all here in the united states there's very little we value more than our sovereignty our place of honor in the world but Jesus doesn't simply accept their praise of him, but he responds with his own quotation of sorts. So rather than responding in the manner of Psalm 118, this victorious military victory uh, of a king returning to Jerusalem, Jesus finds a donkey and he rides it. And we're told he is indirectly quoting Zechariah 9.9. 9. And let me read that for you. It reads... Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, just and having salvation is he, lowly and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Alright, now at first glance, this sounds like he's in agreement with the crowd. After all, he is accepting the title of king, although they probably weren't expecting him to be a lowly king, but a king nonetheless. But then listen to how Zechariah 9 continues in verse 10. I will cut off, it starts. We've heard that language of cutting off before. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, and the war horse. From Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations rather than cutting off the enemies of Israel in the name of the Lord this king cuts off the instruments of war the chariot the war horse the battle bow And rather than putting the Gentile nations in their place, this king speaks peace to them. I don't know if the crowd understood what Jesus was doing here. Uh, Certainly his disciples didn't. But you can see how they would be disappointed when his actions did not line up with their expectations. And remember that by Friday of this very same week, that crowd which was shouting, Hosanna, would be shouting, Crucify Him. You know, honestly, I'm not sure much has changed in our time. For still today, we welcome Jesus as our King, and still today, we welcome Him as King on our own terms. We look for Jesus to give us success as the world views success to make our churches churches prestigious and influential to cut off all our enemies whether those are cultural or political or perhaps national to affirm us in our actions and our lifestyles to offer us the power to be who we always wanted to be We don't so much serve Jesus, at least not by default, as we use Jesus and our status as Christians, as proof of our goodness or our wisdom. And we elevate our brand of Christianity over those others who we see as inferior. And so when Jesus actually comes, not with the markings of success, but lowly and on a donkey, making his way to a shameful death on a cross— Well, we, along with the rest of the world, are offended, and we turn away, or we try to reinterpret him according to our own values, our own definitions of success. But Jesus is a far more radical king than that. For when Jesus comes as king, he subverts and overturns every would-be king or queen here on this earth, including you and me. By going to the cross and becoming subject to our power, the power of death, and then rising from the dead with forgiveness rather than with vengeance, he reveals that his kingship and his kingdom are the very opposite of every worldly kingdom. And by declaring to you his love and his forgiveness unconditional and free, he releases you from your captivity to the ways of the world. He releases you from your captivity to the consolidation of power. He releases you from your captivity to the storing up of wealth. He releases you from your captivity to the demonstration of success. And instead, he sets you free for selfless service so that you may be poured out for the world just as he was and is. So, daughter of Zion, do not be afraid, for your king is coming, lowly and riding on a donkey. He will cut off from you every worldly display of success, every violent and selfish way, every captivity which enthralls you. Your sin Your greed, your cowardice, your pride, these will come to an end. For he will cut them off, finally and completely. And in their place, this king, this Jesus, leaves his treasures, his love, his mercy, his service. And these things which seem small and lowly in the world, they will carry you through trials and through oppressions. For Jesus indeed is the conquering king. And today he comes for you. Amen.